1: I'm uh, delighted to be back with you again for yet another week and uh, today we're going to talk about the business secrets of the Trappist monks with my guest August Turak. Um, but before we do that, uh, I'd just like to say a big thank you to Ashley Baroda and Andrew Thorpe for joining the show last week and talking with us about how to use humour and also storytelling when you're speaking and um, some good comments about that show and some really great uh, ideas and thoughts in there. So if you are not listened to it and uh, you'd like to speak or present, then um, do take a look. So the last couple of weeks um, here and my life have in many ways been... um, not far from we've free, we've had a death in the family on the, and then um, my seven-year-old broke his wrist on the first day of his summer holiday, which actually meant for the first time in three years, I'd not only had to postpone my Achiever Programme group call, uh, not once, but two weeks running. I also had punctures in my car. I, we've had a tree fall and partially blocked the entrance to our drive. But one of the things I've really noticed is that I feel a real sense of calm, despite of all of those, whereas probably once upon a time I'd felt a sense of chaos. And I've been reflecting on why, and I think it's simply that I'm always looking for learning in every challenge now. And I'm always asking myself, if something seems as though it's going wrong, um, what are the gifts in it? And even the death provided an opportunity to reflect on our lives as well as that of our relative. And my seven-year-old learned to be a little bit more careful, Uh, and I realized, counter to government propaganda, that a health service can actually be a very caring place indeed. I've now got four brand-new tires, so my car's even safer, and I've got a large pile of logs and increased fitness from chopping them all up. Um, yesterday I even took my seven-year-old to cheer him up. Um, I had a Father's Sunday and, and took him with a splint in his arm to a very beautiful English castle called Warwick Castle. And the castle was almost a thousand years of history. And my son realized that having broken his wrist on Monday was far preferable to being hit in the stomach with an arrow, falling on a spike while trying to cross the trench around the castle, or having white hot urine poured onto his head, such as some people experience trying to break into the castle in medieval times. And what it did make us both appreciate was how lucky we are to live in the country that we tutored today um, in a life truly is a journey. Um, But there are always gifts to learn from it. And, you know, I would say that a gift that I've had over the last few weeks was meeting uh, the guest of this show today um, that we've only met virtually um, via Skype and the phone line. But um, August has um, this really interesting guy. And he, interestingly, he, His experiences about being with Trappist monks actually came about through an unfortunate accident that he may share with us a little bit later on. I'm always curious and fascinated to learn more about lives of different people and how they can teach us about successful business. Monks are clearly known for living in silence and seclusion, but August knows that they hold something of great value to us, the key to business success. I found his new book, *Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks: One CEO's Quest for Meaning and Authenticity*, very inspiring, and I think that's why, if you look it up on Amazon, it's currently at number 17 in the top 100's hot new releases. Um, it's a really interesting and inspiring uh, read, and he tells the story of how he spent the past 17 years working part-time alongside Trappist monks as they run high-margin businesses producing commodities such as beer, eggs, and exotic mushrooms. He started out searching for enlightenment, but he ended up with a lifetime of lessons that taught him that success does not mean sacrificing business for big profits. You can, in fact, have both. The monks also break many business rules except one. That's the commitment to quality where the secret lies. Rather than obsess about profits and the bottom line, the monks succeed in business by practicing the idea of service and selflessness. And the profits always seem to take care of themselves. Um, August, he prefers to be called Algie, is a successful entrepreneur, corporate executive, and award-winning writer. He's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, Selling Magazine, the New York Times, and Business Week, and is a popular leadership contributor at Ford.com. Before he wrote the book, he wrote an essay um, for a literary competition, which won a $100,000 first prize. and That helped him, I think, appreciate the gift that writing a book on this subject could bring. And I'm sure, and I've noted, that even the actor Michael Keaton loves his book. Not often you can say that Batman is a fan of your work. So a big welcome to Algi Chirac. Thank
2: you so much, Chris. It's wonderful to be with you.
1: Uh, it's great to, speak, great to speak to you. And um, maybe we could start the um, sort of process by you explaining a little bit about your background and how you came to spend time with the Chappis monks of Nepkin Abbey.
2: Well, at the time, it was uh, 1996, and I was the uh, CEO of a software startup called Raleigh Group International in Research Triangle Park, uh, North Carolina, and I had segued into entrepreneurship after a corporate career that included working for MTV and what is now the Arts and Entertainment Network. But I was also very, very interested in and committed to coaching college students um, an organization called the Self Knowledge Symposium sprang up around a lecture that I gave and it went to the local universities like University of North Carolina and Duke and North Carolina State University. And um, basically the organization was a student run organization that centered around the perennial question is what is the life worth living? Uh what what should we do with our lives? What's a meaningful life? Anyway, a bunch of these kids convinced me to go skydiving with them as a quote unquote team building exercise. And as I like to say, I was brave enough to jump out of an airplane, but not brave enough to tell them I was too darn old to be jumping out of airplanes. Hmm. So I smashed my ankle. Uh, in, in, when, I, when I landed, I uh, compound fractured my ankle. And this actually precipitated kind of a, uh, uh, a, a midlife crisis or whatever you want to call it. And this is what pro- propelled me to the, to the monastery.
1: And were you? I mean, have you always been a very sort of spiritual person? Was it just out of you know, when I was out yes. of a recommendation?
2: Yes, when I was uh, even in college, um, I was a child of the late '60s, early '70s, and um, when I got to college, I just started asking the big questions in life: What am I supposed to do with my life? Is there a God? Uh, what is the meaning of life? Does life have any meaning? And uh, this became, I became obsessed with it. Uh, this led me to a uh, study of Eastern religions and eventually Zen Buddhism. And, uh, and I actually got so interested in it that I took a hiatus from college. I dropped out for five years in order to study full-time with a, with a Zen teacher in the early 70s. So I've always been, fa- uh, been fanatically interested in spirituality and, and the big questions in life. As a matter of fact, my definition of spirituality is coming to some kind of answer of those big questions.
1: Uh, so actually what you've, you've done is you've studied different di- disciplines like, like Buddhism, I guess, Trappist monks. Um, is is that Right. The, the,
2: the thing that fascinated me, the re, the, the, back when I was still in college, there was um, the most famous Trappist monk in modern times is a man by the name of Thomas Merton. And Thomas Merton was a New York intellectual, party boy, uh, writer, um, and uh, he uh, gave it all up to become a, a monk at the Trappist monastery of Gethsemane in Kentucky. And uh, at first he wasn't allowed to write, but then he started writing again, and he wrote a bunch of uh, books. His most famous, I think, is probably his autobiography, The Seven-Story Mountain. And, uh, and I got turned on to his books when I was still in college, And towards the end of his life, uh, he got very, very interested in Zen and Buddhism, but Zen in particular. He's written a lot about Zen, and he actually died in a tragic accident in a conference in Bangkok uh, where he was hanging out with Buddhist monks. So that was kind of the crossover. He was kind of the synthesizer between some of the ideas that I was so fascinated about Zen and how it applies to to Christianity as well.
1: So, so what, you, what you then
2: did is you decided to
1: what, go out and stay with them for a while, and you know, how, did,
2: how did that happen? Well, what you, happened was in, um, uh, after I, I, when I went into the hospital, I was in the hospital for a week with my broken ankle, and I started having wave after wave of panic attacks, and I couldn't figure out why I was having these incredibly terrifying panic attacks and it suddenly uh, hit me that it wasn't anything to do with my ankle per se. It was that the the uh, sh- shock of the ankle injury, injury was forcing me to confront my own mortality, and I suddenly realized that I was not prepared to die. That despite what I had the, all the work that I had done over the years, that I considered you know valuable spiritual work, I was not ready. And so after I got out of the hospital. The panic attacks went away, but I still had this feeling that something had cracked inside of me. Um, fundamentally, I was depressed. And just at that time, um, a few months later, or I guess six months later, one of my students called me and told me that he was at a Trappist spending the summer at a Trappist monastery. And without even thinking, and I just heard the change in his voice, he seemed to have grown so much in, the, in just a couple of months living with these guys and I just suddenly said, I want to come. So he went and talked to Brother John. Brother John invited me that weekend. I was blown away. I came back the next weekend and the next weekend. And then look, gradually I, and I heard about the monastic guest program that met this. The monastery I went to is called Metkin Abbey, right outside of uh, Charleston, South Carolina, here in the States. And uh, they have a monastic guest program where non-monks can spend extended periods of time living with them, working with them, uh, fundamentally being a part-time monk. And I began taking advantage of that program and going down for longer and longer periods. Um, eventually, I actually, uh, I've spent as long as three months at a time with the monks, living with them.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so tell us about their business successes and why you think their attitudes and experience is just so relevant to modern-day
2: business. Well, it all started, I think, uh, uh, by accident, because obviously I didn't go to the monastery in order to study their business practices. But as an entrepreneur and businessman myself, uh, I couldn't help but notice over the years that they had all that these monks had all these different businesses. Yet, uh, and and they're very successful at it. So here's these guys, 70 years old on average, um, living in silence pretty much. Um, working only four hours a day because they're a contemplative order that that gets up at three in the morning and they spend so many hours a day in prayer. So how do these guys manage to pull this off? And that became the question that I posed uh, for myself. And the answer that I came back with is that it's in your own self-interest to forget your self-interest. The secret to the monk's success is that they're not in business at all they're working towards a high overarching mission which is they want to be of service to other people. Now if you look at business um, writings over the last 25 or 30 years everybody is talking about delighting customers and the mission that the monastery has is fundamentally to delight people to serve people to serve other uh, to transcend selfishness be a selfless person and this translates into a tremendous business philosophy that I call service and selflessness is what guides everything they do. <clears throat> People sometimes say to me, you know, how, well, how does this apply to business? And I say, well, listen, as a salesman myself, and, a, and if I may be, say so, a very good one, um, you know, every great salesman knows that the more he forgets about himself, forgets about his product, forgets about his commissions, forgets about his quota, and fanatically focuses on delighting his customer, helping his customer, serving his customer, the more commissions he makes, the more product he moves. It takes care of itself. It's, it's what I call aim past the target. The same thing in leadership. The more, every great leader understands that the more he forgets about his own career, his own career path, his own promotions, and fanatically serve, uh, works on it, making other people successful, the promotions will take care of themselves. And when entire corporations focus, for example, Apple, you know, um, Steve Jobs was fanatically focused on delighting people, on, on coming up with products that delighted people. The profits take care of themselves. So this this is something that the monks have been. This is considered new and revolutionary in business, selflessness. But it's something that the monks have been doing for over a thousand years with tremendous success.
1: Mm. Uh, <clears throat> so, what, so what do you see as the challenges with today's business? Then that you experienced at Mapkina Abbey address is, is it that people, businesses
2: are very focused on the profit and less so on the service? Or yes, I I think that. Uh, First of all, we, as a culture, not just business as a subset of this, we are immediate gratification people. Uh, uh, My old mentor, Louis R. Mobley, was the uh, founder of the IBM Executive School in 1956, and he ran it until 1966. And he used to say to me, you know, you young people, you want it all and you want it now. So this translates also to corporations being... Uh, interested in expediency on the, on the quarterly profits and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, but I think it's deeper than that. I think fundamentally there's two sides to the equation. First of all, you have to be intellectually convinced that nice things do happen for nice people, that the more you help other people, the more it's going to take care of you. Um, so first of all, you have to intellectually buy into that, and, and I'm trying very hard. This is one of the big purposes of my book, is to use as, as many case studies from my own business career and from the monks and from other corporations to convince people that, you know, this is not just all motherhood and fluff. It's just darn good business. Selflessness. Second point is mm, the harder part. Even if you're intellectually convinced, that selflessness rather than selfishness is the quickest way to success, changing your behavior is, a whole, uh, is the next big challenge that you have because our habits of mind and are so ingrained that it be, it's, it's a challenge to be able to change your, 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 absolute, your behavior. And I'm, that, too, is a lot of what I'm talking about in my book, Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks. That's a
1: big challenge. Big, uh... A big kind of challenge. A lot of people have great intentions, don't they? That, well, they don't necessarily shift their behavior accordingly.
2: Exactly. That's why I use the model in my book of Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey. Because Joseph Campbell, who's you know, very famous, um, wrote a book called uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And he went around the world and uh, studied all the religions and folk tales and everything he could get his hands on, and he found this common denominator repeated again and again, that the hero takes this journey um, towards uh, transcendence, towards self-transcendence. <clears throat> and another way of describing that would be is that they it's the transformational journey from selfishness to selflessness. And what we see in movies like The Devil Wears Prada and Groundhog Day and The Matrix and And the Truman Show, there's dozens and dozens of movies that have made billions of dollars at the box office that are based on people like Steven Spielberg and George Lucas who are very much schooled with uh, Campbell's model. But But when we look at almost any kind of storytelling that we enjoy and pay so much money for, it's almost always a story about a transformational journey where the hero or protagonist starts out ignorant and selfish and through experiences or a teacher or whatever comes to a realization of the limitations of selfishness and ends up being a selfless person by the end of the movie or the book and absolutely. my point is always that uh, the fact that we find these so fascinating tells me that we really want the same thing
1: absolutely well we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that after the commercial break we're just going to go um, to a commercial break we should be back with you again in a couple of minutes And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about selflessness and selfishness um, after the break.
2: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
0: Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? How can we Americans realize our dreams to earn a living? How can you pursue your dream and make money as an owner or an employee? Learn how at the American Business Person, the online weekly radio talk show hosted by Rich Killian. Today's business
2: leaders share how to succeed and what fails. If you own a new or established business or ever hope to, you must tune in. Join us every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Central and Noon Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel or listen on demand to our archived shows. Do you, like most Americans, spend the majority of your life at work? Are you making it the joy that it deserves to be or are you feeling drained and unfocused? Tune in to A Great Place to Work with hosts Kurt Kaufman and Dr. Kathy Sorensen. Your hosts have more than 30 years of experience in workplace consulting and are ready to bring you the secrets and success stories of businesses who are making their business a great place to work. Listen every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and enjoy a better workplace and a better life. Voice America Business Network
1: Hi, this is Chris Cooper of Be More, I'm with um, August Tarak. We're talking about uh, the business secrets of Trappist monks. And, um, Algy, just interested to understand, we, talk, we were talking about selflessness to um, selfishness to selflessness. I mean, how do you think you know, business people can make that transition? Because I do see an awful lot of selfishness in business still these days, even though I do see a movement to move to more selflessness
2: well I think that the first the first thing is, is that you have to make a commitment to um becoming a you know to becoming more uh selfless rather than selfish, and the first thing you do is just you know look at some fundamental facts i mean most people just assume jump to the conclusion that we're happy when we're when we're achieving our selfish desires, but if we think about it a little deeper, I think we would have to admit that we are actually most happy. When we are sacrificing ourselves for something worth sacrificing for, and the key thing in business, the key task of leadership—excuse <clears throat> me—the key task of leadership is to give people that message, that mission, that purpose of what are we sacrificing for. I was uh, had a client who was a uh, <clears throat> the CEO of a rapidly growing mid-sized company, and I asked him for his job description, and he said. Uh well, if you followed me around, you'd think I do a lot of things. But I only have one job. I build passion. He said it's my job to tell people why we're doing the things that we're doing so that they can get them done. He said, People say there's talent is in short supply. He said, talent is not in short supply. What is in short supply is passion. Passion that people can accomplish almost anything. He said, once passion is in place. My job becomes making sure everybody takes enough vacation and staying the heck out of the way. Mm. <clears throat> so, what we really need is is people who can articulate, uh, passionately articulate, a mission worth sacrificing for. And in my book, "Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks," I call these organizations and define these organizations as what I call transformational organizations. <clears throat> And a, a transformational organization has three components to it. Uh, the first thing is a high overarching mission worthy of being selflessly served. And I use the examples of Alcoholics Anonymous and the monks at Mepkin Abbey um, and uh, Louis Mobley's IBM Executive School and um, the Marine Corps <clears throat> here in the States as being the, the, a transformational organization because they have a high overarching mission worthy of being served, number one. Number two, they offer people personal transformation as part of that mission. In other words, if you join as a, a Marine, the Marine Corps says, come join the Marine Corps, and we are going to turn you into a Marine. You, don't, you aren't a Marine because you signed the recruitment papers. You go through a process of becoming a Marine. You're transformed, in other words. And um, the third thing that all these transformational organizations have is a methodology for bringing this transformation about. Louis R. Mobley, for example, saw the 12-week IBM executive school as a transformational journey from selfishness to selflessness. Um, and he ha- so he institutionalized a process. <clears throat> Even though he was talking about a uh, – he was working in a technology company he said his job was not had not to do much to do with technology it had to do with transforming people from managers into executives. And managers get things done and executives decide the things that are worth doing in the first place. And that means values and principles and things like that and virtues not skills. Does that make any sense to you Chris? Mm, absolutely yeah. Yeah, completely. Um completely. and so so the the answer is that we need to build um, uh, organizations that are built around these kinds of missions. We can look at them again. Um, the monks are committed to serving God by serving each other and serving uh, their fellow man so that's their higher over, over- overarching mission you know aA is committed to to helping people become sober, but the paradox to their mission is The easiest way, the best way to become sober is to help other people become sober. The Marine Corps says, you know, we're going to serve the country, the the Marine Corps, and our fellow Marine. There's nothing about me or I in any of these missions. It's about helping and serving other people. And the same thing with uh, IBM Executive School. It was all about serving uh, employees, serving customers, Um, You know, there was a very, very big service and selflessness type of mentality there. So, um, and of course, as I always like to point out, the, the executives that came out of Lou Mobley's program in the 50s and the 60s went on to make IBM the most profitable, the fastest growing, and the most admired corporation in the world in the 60s and 70s. Definitely. So it's not that this is all motherhood and fluff. This stuff works. You will become more profitable, more successful, the more selfless you are.
1: I worked for a very successful company called uh, Mars. I think uh, Mars the candy Company. Mars. Candy Company, yeah. And, you know, they were great at that, uh, at helping transform people. And we, we had courses which helped us understand ourselves better, whereas at the time, you know, not many businesses were doing that sort of thing. And I think it really was, you know, part of the, the success of it. You you were transformed during that that period. Uh, just while you were saying that, I was also thinking about. I know, I know you, you enjoy sports and, and particularly golf. Um, but we also spoke about, in the, and before the interview started, about Andy Murray and about tennis and the fact that you know a Brit had won Wimbledon. And and you could see all of that kind of journey that you talked about, that hero's journey in, in Andy. And, and you know, a year ago he'd cried at Wimbledon, which suddenly was the first glimpse that he was a, he really was a human being, and he really was. Um, he was transforming as a a person, and he he seemed to have this, you know, got this higher mission when it came to Wimbledon. We hadn't won it for, I think, 77 years, Uh, and uh, he'd also got a a mentor in Ivan Lendl that he didn't want to let down, so um, we've seen a journey of him go to more selflessness, and as he's done that, people have got much more engaged with him and his story.
2: Right, absolutely. I mean, the the hero's journey, in my book, I outline it and I apply it to some very popular movies, but... The hero's journey, and I abbreviate the, the cycle that Campbell, uh, for space, I abbreviate it, but into the major stages. And the first stage of the hero's journey is, voca- is the call, or what monks would call the vocation. You know, and in business, I say it, it represents that, that voice that seems to always be calling to an entrepreneur. Um, and I firmly believe that, as one of the monks said, everyone has a vocation. Those who say they don't just never learn to listen. So we all have a vocation to something higher than just uh, a trophy house. Uh, the second stage is always the resistance to the call. There's probably people listening to me right out there saying, oh, I don't have a vocation. Well, that's the resistance to the call. And in movies we see this constantly, you know, where where the hero is re- in retirement and they come back and they want him to take one last mission for the good of the team or the country or whatever, and he tells them to go to hell in the beginning, right? Always. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm. And then he reconsiders, and he, as the monks would say, prays on it, right? And then he eventually decides, okay, I gotta, I gotta take the the, the plunge. The third stage is the desert, and I, that's what really made me think of Andy Murray. You know, you, the 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 desert stage is always where uh, in the movies where the teacher, like Yoda, is standing over Luke Skywalker and saying, "Don't try, do." It's the most difficult stage of the hero's journey because it can last in real life. It can last for years where you're in training um, for the vocation that you've... And a lot of times it doesn't seem like you're getting anywhere. And that's the idea of being lost in the desert, which you see in the Israelites, etc. And importantly, and I experienced this in golf myself when I started taking golf lessons, oftentimes in the desert you get worse before you get better. Because you're trying to, you know, as they say in golf, you're trying to change it. So you're trying to transform your golf swing. So you actually get worse before you get better. So you can actually regress for a while. So it's very challenging to be in the desert. So if you look at it in the movies, for example, in The Devil Wears Prada, you've got uh, Meryl Streep's character throwing coats, uh, a series of coats in the face of uh, Ann, Anne Hathaway's character. And that's supposed to c- suggest the passage of a lot of time and the frustration that she has to put up with because the movie is only two hours long right and we don't want to spend uh, an hour of it um, in the desert because it's boring and in groundhog day um... murray uh... gets uh, bill murray gets his face slapped a thousand times you know or ten times in a montage they use these montages to give slap, slap 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 to let you know that he's making the same darn mistakes selfish mistakes over and over again and can't and refuses to uh... see what's going on And so Andy uh, McDowell, whatever her name, Andy McDowell is her name, she's slapping his face over and over. So usually they abbreviate the desert stage in this way. The next stage is the Great Trial. Once the hero has developed all this power in the desert, then um, he's tested somehow. And it's great in The Matrix, for example, or or in The Devil Wears Prada, where um, in The Matrix all the power that he has built up uh, is not enough for him to be able to defeat um, the Agent Smith, and uh, oftentimes the hero is tempted by the dark side. What is the dark side? The dark side is oh, you've got all this power now. Um, why don't you use it for selfish purposes? Why don't you become a powerful person, Darth Vader? And so in the in the in this, uh, Star Wars saga, Darth Vader is an example of somebody who succumbs to the uh, seduction of power, using his personal power. The next stage is the death, uh, uh, the death and rebirth stage. And in The Matrix, that's what happens. He, all the power, all the selfish, egocentric power that he's built up is not enough for him to defeat Agent Smith. So he has to be die and be reborn. And, he's, and that happens through, oftentimes in the movies, through love. In the case of The, the Matrix, it's a woman who just happens to be named Trinity of all things who is connected by a phone line of quote-unquote love or grace, who brings him back to life. And the final stage is the return to help others. <clears throat> so once the hero has been reborn, then he always comes back to help other people. And this is the same model, and the reason it's repeated like clockwork in so many of these movies, is as, it's as ancient as, as humanity. It's as old as storytelling. And it's not something somebody invented, and the reason it resonates for us is we're all longing to take the hero's journey. Now, the details may be different, as all these movies are different as far as the, they can be set in the, in, in the Middle Ages or in the future or in the present or in New York City, but they're all the themes are always the same. And my argument in my book is we would not spend billions and billions of dollars to watch other people be transformed from selfishness to selflessness via the hero's journey if we didn't want to take that same journey ourselves, both individually and collectively.
1: <clears throat> and, and do you think things like, um, you know, our health is very linked to, uh, whether we take that or, so, you know, our, our resistance to the journey and also maybe, you know, our reaction to, and you know, I talked about some, you know, some challenges I've had in the last couple of weeks, but how you react to those challenges during that that process?
2: Well, I think that Um, getting to your point of health, I think, is very, very critically important. Today, the World Health Organization says for Western civilization, by a long shot, the number one health affliction is depression. I teach at Duke University, which is one of the most prestigious universities in America. It costs $50,000 a year to go there, and the provost told us that one in four incoming freshmen are already on antidepressants so what is going on with Western civilization? you know and I think that it's because, as the old song says, we 're looking for love in all the wrong places um, you can't we 're not finding our fulfillment in, in, in meaning and purpose, um, and I think this is compounded because. Um, the decline of religion, especially in Europe, but even here, um, people are not finding the meaning and purpose that they used to find in church. And, uh, and I think a lot of us, whether we realize it or not, are looking for that same sense of meaning and purpose in our business and professional lives, and we're not finding it. And no matter how many trophy wives we have or how many trophy cars and houses we have, we st- we're not, you can't fill that hole in your soul with those kinds of things. Um, So uh, I think that we can either look at this depression uh, epidemic as a symptom of a declining civilization, or, as I prefer to, I think it is the uh, burning bush trying to lead us to a higher purpose with our lives by frustrating our lower desires. Mm.
1: We've got a couple of minutes to commercial break, Um, but I just... Relating to that, when I explore something that I, I read in your book that I'd not I'd not read before that I uh, you know really resonated with me in my life because I can see my life in the hero's journey. I can see myself in different phases, and I sometimes you know dip back into the desert. It's even scorching hot here today. Um, but you you talked in the book about that sometimes the shortest point between two distances is a long is a long way round.
2: Right. So
1: that was really insightful. Can I explain that briefly.
2: Well. What we usually think is that selfishness is the, is the um, you know, the, the shortest distance between uh, two points. For example, um, if you're going to do something for, you know, first of all, before I do something for you, you're gonna, I'm going to make sure you do something for me. Or conversely, I'm not going to do anything for you unless I have a very clear idea of what you're going to reciprocate with. Um, the idea that you should just give. Uh, for the pure joy of giving, and that in some way, in some magical way, that you probably cannot anticipate or understand at this point, it will come back to you with with interest. That seems like the long way around. You know, we want to be able to, if we're going to uh, help an old lady across the street, we want uh, somebody like me to guarantee that we can now run into a, a grocery store, buy a lottery ticket, and we're going to win. And that seems like the shortest distance, but actually it's the long way around. It's the idea that if you live an ethical life and you do the right things simply because it's the right thing to do and you don't worry so much about how it's going to come back to you, it comes back to you the quicker. Yeah. In other words, the pure your motivations are, the quicker it works out for you. And that seems completely, that seems like the long way around to most people.
1: We're going to get a commercial break now, and we'll come back after the break. And I want to ask you a question about goat rodeos. So do stay on the line and listen to the rest of the show, um, because there's some really good content to follow, I assure you. So we'll be back with you again in just a couple of minutes.
2: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
0: Hi, I'm Rebecca Costa, host of the Costa Report every Tuesday at 6 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. This week, my guest is outspoken former congressman and one of our country's most prominent gay public figures, Mr. Barney Frank. He'll be with us to talk about the Supreme Court's ruling on DOMA and how the Obama presidency is doing in its second term. Don't miss Barney Frank this Tuesday at 6 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. on the Voice America Business Channel.
2: together in conversations that make a difference right here on the voice America business channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m pacific standard time
0: would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential chris cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the achiever program one-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you.
2: The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network.
0: tuned in to be more achieve more with host chris cooper if you have a question or comment about our show please direct your emails to info at be that's info at be now back to chris cooper
1: hi it's chris cooper of be more achieve i'm with um august turak and um, his, his, his web address by the way is august and uh, his book is available on Amazon if, uh, if you want to obtain a copy, and it's called Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks. So August, let's, let's um, move into some of the, the, of the bits that really interested me and inspired me in your book. I'd look to, uh, like to ask you about goat rodeos, because I think that was a
2: really important concept. Yeah, it took place uh, during the time that I, we started our company in 1993 on just a couple of thousand dollars and. In- Gradually built it up just using eternally generated cash, which uh, I illustrate throughout Business Secrets of the Trappist Months as an example of how we started probably, uh, we started with nothing and uh, we used the principles of the Trappist to build our own company. So I'm using that as evidence that I'm not just talking about theory. I'm talking about practice. Anyway, we eventually developed a strategic relationship, my company, Raleigh Group International, with uh, Microsoft. And I used to spend a lot of time in Redmond, Washington, on the Microsoft campus um, in the early 90s, um, you know, trying to working on this relationship. And what I noticed when I was out there was it reminded me of when I was at MTV, because everybody was young, everybody was on fire for Microsoft and its mission, everybody was sleeping under their desks for what looked like the uh, pure pleasure of doing so, like kids camping out or something. And I was so amazed at this passionate culture that Microsoft had that I asked a particularly fervent adherent of the secular religion one day what the secret to it all was, and he screamed in my face, Goat rodeos! (laughs) And I said, well, what the heck's a goat rodeo? And he said, I'll tell you what a goat rodeo is. It's 5 o'clock on Friday night, and Bill Gates calls you up, and he says he plans to demo your product at a Tokyo trade show 10,000 people and simulcast it all over the world to a half a million more and he needs the uh, he wants to demo your product he said meanwhile the product's half done it's buggy as hell he said but you and your team stay up all night all over the weekend work like crazy and somehow 10 minutes before he goes out on stage you deliver him the bits he goes out knocks them dead he said that's one goat rodeo and when you've made, done four or five goat rodeos, you've made your bones at Microsoft. And I was absolutely blown away. And I realized that, gradually realized that whether, you know, obviously I doubt whether uh, Bill Gates even knew it. I certainly doubt whether in anything about goat rodeos was in the mission or in the employee handbook. But what was driving this passionate um, Uh, effort that these young people, and mostly young people, were willing to do was this sensing the fact that they had an opportunity to be transformed. As the Marine Corps said, come to the Marines, be all you can be. Well, they sensed an opportunity that Microsoft had, was presenting them, to be all they could possibly be. And as I mentioned in the book, I said, you know, so many Microsoft millionaires quote-unquote, were created by um, Microsoft stock among employees that the term Microsoft millionaire was freely bandied about in the press. But I never heard anybody on dozens and dozens of trips to Microsoft talk about money. They were on fire for the mission. They felt like they were changing the world. They felt like they were bringing uh, a a form of enlightenment uh, to the masses. And frankly, I believe they were. If it hadn't been for Microsoft and its technology, I would not have been able to start a business on $2,000. And uh, so they were helping millions of people, and they sensed that. And, uh, And I think that was the absolute secret. Again, I go back again and again to the fact that if you want to be successful in your life personally, if you want a successful organization, it's all about passionate commitment and motivation among people. We can do anything when we get our heads together, and we're passionate about it. But the difficult thing is that the vast majority of organizations don't know how to inspire that passion. They don't know how to create goat rodeo opportunities. They don't know how to communicate it to their their people. And uh, this this is a large part of what the monks are able to do that I talk about in Business Secrets of the Trappist.
1: Do you see that as being a strategy then that companies should adopt, that they should uh, set up you know, so many of these goat rodeos just to kind of, I think like a, a CEO saying, <clears throat> you know, I kind of throw a little bomb in different areas of the business occasionally to set hairs running. Um, is it by making sure that people have the opportunity to be stretched and uh, moving towards, a, you know, a common purpose and a goal together um, that brings camaraderie and it builds energy? and Absolutely.
2: Um, I, and in my book, Business Things of the Trappist, I distinguish between consciously consciously transformational organizations and unconsciously the big difference between Microsoft didn't understand at least I don't think that they understood what the real secret was many many small companies and I do work with them I was just working with one and it's mentioned in my book called Yext and many small companies you find that same fervor that same energy but it dies out as they get older because they the companies themselves when they're young they don't understand why these people are so passionate and later as they grow they lose it as a that's why they're unconscious again microsoft didn't talk about goat rodeos in its in its um, mission it didn't talk about goat rodeos or using other words they could have used other words in their 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 employee handbook but the marines do the marines say right up front come here you're gonna, we're going to serve the country, we're going to serve the Corps, we're going to serve our fellow Marines. Number two, we're telling you right up front, we have a goat rodeo that's going to turn you into a Marine. And mm-hmm. third, they have a process called boot camp that actually accomplishes that. AA has its 12-step program. IBM had its 12-week executive school. Um, The monks have what's called the novitiate, where you start as a postulant, then you become a novice, then you become your simple vows, you go through this whole process. And it's right there up front. It's been institutionalized right into the organization. So fundamentally, what corporations need to be able to do is is offer this transformation right up front, know that this is important, and secondly, they need their equivalent of a 12-step program. What Mobley said about the IBM Executive School, he said Tom Watson, Jr., who gave him the blank check to start, it said, I want you to build a perfect environment for personal growth. And Mobley always said, we were not about training. We didn't train people. We grew people. It's a process. Training is about skills. You can, you, one day you can't type. You go to a class. They teach you to, to, they train you to be able to type. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about personal growth. Goat rodeos are about personal growth.
1: So so I I really get that, and I think it's a really valuable message for people to take away. I'm interested from your experience at the Abbey, how your views on mission have been shaped.
2: Well, to me, you know, mission is everything. And I think on a personal, um, I often say to people, you know, I was a very when I was in business myself, I was a very good planner, and I enjoy planning, and I enjoy seeing the fruits of my plan come together. However, I never had any kind of a real plan for either my business or, most importantly, my life. What I had was a mission. When I was back in college, I didn't say it to myself exactly this way, but it was pretty close. What do I want out of my life? Uh, my mission is to become the best human being I can possibly be. And it was following my star, so to speak, my vocation, To be, how do I become the best person? This is what led me to Lou Mobley, for example. I used to go to bookstores when I would visit a new, uh, come to a new city and I would ask them, who are the coolest people in town? The owners, I'd ask them that. Who can, who can teach me something? And that's how I met, uh, somebody gave me Lou Mobley's telephone number. I went to Lou Mobley looking for personal growth, not for business uh, stuff. It's only after I met him, that I realized he had run, uh, run the IBM Executive School and he was retired at the time. And he eventually made me, you know, I, I, you know, I was so impressed with him that I said, listen, I'll help you um, um, build your little consulting business that you've uh, started since you retired. All I expect in return, I don't want any money. I just want to be able to uh, um, learn everything you know. And he said, uh, well, I'll tell you one better. He said, I want you to move into my house with me and my family. You'll live in a guest house. I'll meet with you every morning and tutor you in my study. And in the afternoons, you can go out and find us some clients, but I insist on paying you. So I got this incredible two-year education, well, working at, sitting at the uh, feet of this man, um, but I was not interested in business at the time. I was interested in personal growth. And all of the success that I've had in business and, and in selling my companies, et cetera, Came as a byproduct, a trailing indicator of my commitment to this high overarching mission. So, when companies have this, have a mission like that, and I u- illustrated in my book a, a very, very good case study of a company um, called True Lion Federal Credit Union that is committed to uh, having a positive impact on other people's lives. That's what their mission is. You know, this can inspire people to do tremendous things. And this is what the monks have. They have a high, overarching mission. And people are constantly telling me the mission is too vague or it's too soft or whatever. That's not right. They, you know, the, the Marine Corps can take a, a vague, high mission like serve the country, serve the Corps, serve your fellow Marines, and they translate that into people doing push-ups. They can make it very, very practical. It's the executives that need to be able to translate this mission into the day-to-day operations of the business.
1: Yes, yes. And Pharma I was reading a, a mission recently uh, for a company I was working in. It said something about being a leading supplier in the IT industry, and I thought actually, God, that could be so much bigger and more
2: compelling. <laughs> Absolutely, that was the first thing I thought when you just mentioned it. <clears throat> we need to aim past the par- target. We need bigger missions that are that are built around principles and values and purpose and integrity and things like that. And, uh, and, and, and and if you have those, then, uh, you know, for a company like that company you just mentioned being the number you know, one in the IT business, what if the IT business goes away, then what are they going to do? You know, my, grand, my father worked for a, uh, um, the Pennsylvania Railroad, and he said, the Pennsylvania Railroad here in the United States eventually went bankrupt. And he said our biggest mistake was we thought we were in the railroading business. He said, so when the trucks and the planes came along, we said, well, we don't have anything to do with them, but if we had defined ourselves as being in the transportation business rather than the railroading business, so how you define yourself becomes the box that you put yourself in, and when things change around you, you don't even notice it until it's too late.
1: I've got about, about a minute left for you to share any final messages that you'd like to leave us with, so in one minute...
2: Well, you know what I what I would like to end, end probably with is that there that all human motivation can be described as an urge to transformation. Every acorn longs to be an oak. Um, and but there's three different kinds of transformation. The first is when a thirsty man drinks, he transforms his condition. When a poor man hits the lottery, he transforms his circumstances. But when Mr. Scrooge wakes up on Christmas morning, an utterly new man, he has experienced a transformation of being. And what we're all really looking for, whether we realize it or not, is this transformation of being. And this transformation of being is always a transformation from selfishness to selflessness. That's what Mr. Scrooge wakes up on Christmas morning understanding. And um, so what we need in our organizations and in our personal lives is to s- start working towards transformations of being. That doesn't mean that, that, that stock options are bad or that Coca-Cola, free, free Coca-Cola's in the break room are bad, even though they're transformations of circumstance and condition. They're necessary, too. We all need to eat. But what we're really but, longing for, and I think the symptom of why we're, so many of us are depressed, is we want a transformation of being. And this is what the monasteries uh, provide, and this is a large part of what Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks is about. How do we, you know, offer other We've people... We've got to leave you there, Augie. We're, we're, we're running out of time. We're going to All get cut right off, in
1: any minute. But thank you so much for being on the show. I think it was a very, very powerful, some really great messages. I hope you've enjoyed joining us today. Um, for more information on August Tarak, go to com. As I mentioned, his book is available at Amazon. Um, if you have any questions or feedback, please send them to chris at bemoreachievemore.com. Um, linking with me get on, on Facebook with me at facebook.com slash be more achieve more on next week's show we've got Celia Delaney we're going to talk about how to use speaking to promote your business is, Celia is a, a former actress and, um, and now helps um, people uh, create amazing um, speak, speaking and, uh, and helps them promote their speaking businesses so I look forward to speaking to you again next week have a wonderful week and thanks again to August Turak thank you thank you August.
0: Thank you for listening to Be More, Achieve More. Please join your host, Chris Cooper, again next Friday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, typically 4 p.m. London on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your week.
2: Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel.